Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Good morning, everybody. Hey, my name is Terry. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, uh, let's let's meet uh, afterward. It's good to see everybody. Thank you for uh, choosing to spend some of your uh, Independence Day weekend with us. We um, consider it an honor, and we know that you'd rather be here than at the beach or lake or something like that, so we're, we're glad that you're here. Um, we're going to be continuing today in our series through the parables of Jesus. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We'll get there in just a minute. Um, this passage today is interesting to me because it speaks to us right where we are, kind of culturally at, at the moment. Um, what, what do I mean by that? I mean that, I mean, if, you, if you've looked around, you probably realize that uh, we're in a time of upheaval, <laughs> uh, for, for lack of a, a better word, politically, socially, economically, seemingly every other way, um, things are hitting like a, a, a crescendo of chaos, it, it seems, seems to be. Uh, and it can seem, as Christians, you know, like the culture around us is increasingly, um, I don't know, like, like lost, uh, kind of out to sea, and, may, and maybe that's the case. Um, but in the midst of it all, I think we as followers of Jesus can feel like, you know, it's, we're um, maybe being increasingly pushed to the margins. And ultimately, we can maybe feel like the church is going to be defeated. Right? The church is, is kind of on its way out. Well, if you hear that or if you kind of get that idea in, in your own mind, like, man, uh, Jesus is going to lose and the church is going to lose. I, I would encourage you to go ahead and mark that down as... Uh, false, is demonstrably false, because Jesus himself said that his church would never truly be utterly destroyed. In fact, to quote him directly, he said that not even the gates of hell would prevail against his church. So now certainly there have been times um, and places throughout church history, and even in today's world where Christianity um, seemed like a really beleaguered, tiny minority in certain places on our planet, kind of doomed to be, to like vanish out of existence. And again, we can start to feel that way, even where we are, as blessed as we are uh, to be here, even in our cultural climate. And so that's certainly how I would think Jesus' disciples would have felt in his ministry where we pick up here in um, Matthew 13. We find Jesus and his disciples at this point. There's a period of time where there were like massive seas of people were following Jesus prior to this. And he was a little bit of a kind of an itinerant celebrity of sorts. But now we're, we're getting to the point in Jesus's ministry where people are leaving. People are abandoning kind of the, the throng that was following Jesus. And the, the powers that be were uh, becoming increasingly hostile to Jesus. Uh, now remember, just for a little context, Matthew chapter 13 starts with the parable of the sower and the seed that we covered earlier in our series. Uh, it's a parable where Jesus describes his followers as, his disciples as good soil, right, that bears a crop that's way bigger in, uh, than what looked like it would ever be able to bear, even than 
what was sown. But before this encouraging harvest, Jesus talks about different kinds of soils being described. And these are considered to be like those who, what's the best way to put it, receive the good news about Jesus, the seed, the gospel message, in a way that does not result in ultimate faith in Jesus. And therefore, they don't have the root of salvation, right, from Jesus. And then the second section of Matthew chapter 13 is where we're going to spend our time today, right? So um, it builds on this first one. It continues this garden uh, motif and again points and really it kind of paints in stark contrast, right, in bold tones. And what we'll see is that God is planting a garden of souls. And even in these bold contrasts and stark colors, I want us to see today that this message is one of hope. The message that we're going to see today in the parables of Jesus is one of hope. And I usually, I don't know why it is, James, but when I'm preaching, it's not about hope. Is it like, it's like, you're sinners, you know, uh, and we are, we are sinners. And there's great hope for us sinners, right? Uh, his name is Jesus. Uh, but today, this message is, um, is, is an encouraging one uh, for me. The theme is kind of that the world itself is God's garden. And from this garden is going to come a great harvest. Now, we're going to cover like three parables today, right? And then we'll talk about a summary that Jesus gives uh, of them. But again, spoiler alert, the theme is one that says, it should, it should encourage us that this harvest, these, these seeds, these plants planted by God will survive and thrive even though their current situation and their, their beginning looked unpromising. Despite obstacles or how it might appear um, that God will bring a harvest. Let's pick up in Matthew chapter 13. We're going to read verses 24 through 31st. Not 31st first, but first we're going to read. You know, you know what I'm saying. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. Okay. He put, he, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, we'll stop there for now. This is the, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, if you're a note taker. Now, later uh, in the chapter, Jesus is going to give an explanation of what he's talking about here. Uh, but even now, maybe you could begin to see that what he's getting at is, is pretty clear. Again, remember the context. Jesus just told the parable of the sower and the soils, right? And he explained it. And then the seed in that parable, again, was a metaphor for the gospel. Now, I don't want to uh, assume anything. Uh, if you're new around here or you're, you didn't like uh, grow up in a church environment, just real quick, the gospel is simply good news. 
right? But it's a specific good news. It's the good news that, man, God made uh, all of humanity for special relationship with him among all of creation, right? Humanity used the freedom that God gave us to rebel against God. But God is so good and so loving and so powerful and so wonderful that he provided the solution for our rebellion, right? He sent Jesus, God the Father sent Jesus, God the Son, to bear the penalty for us, for our rebellion, so that now all who place their faith in him can be reconciled to God and live with him now and forever. That's great news, right? Uh, That's great news. Um, That's why we call it the gospel. And that's the seed that God has planted in his garden. And uh, again, Jesus said that different kinds of soils will produce different kinds of plants. And those plants stood for different kinds of people in the world that received the gospel in different ways. So then coming fresh off of hearing that parable, the people here see Jesus carry this garden theme through, and he gives a similar illustration with God as the farmer. God is the gardener in this parable. And here today, though, Jesus adds an additional player, kind of an additional farmer in this garden. And you can see in your text there, Jesus says an enemy has done this. An enemy has planted in this garden. This is an additional player in the battle for the souls of humanity. This is the devil. And although this is a parable, Satan's a, a, a real person. You guys understand. This is a real being. He's a real enemy. Um, and Jesus has included him here in this uh, parable. So you see the image. There's a, there's a garden of souls, and Satan wants to plant counterfeits in the garden of God. Now, this would have been a common theme for Jesus' hearers here. Uh, there's a distinguished New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg. He's been one of my major go-tos for this series and, and for today. But he points out what, um, that there are actually uh, ancient accounts that, that are very similar to this, where you would have, uh, and, and Blomberg calls it bioterrorism. And I, I, I would liken it to like agricultural warfare, where you'd have like a, an enemy of a pow- powerful landowner would go to the landowner's uh, garden and plant weeds secretly tr- to try to destroy the crop during harvest season. Right? So he, he would come in, scatter seeds in, in, in the middle of the night without the landowner knowing it. And begin, again, because this was an agrarian culture, they're farmers, they, they, you know, they, they live off the land, Jesus' hearers would have been like, okay, I get it, I, I know what you're talking about. But Jesus, being Jesus, he makes even the most comfortable, familiar hearers uncomfortable. He always throws it like a curveball, right? Jesus says really unusual, something really unusual, even to them. He says, the farmer gives the command, don't pull up the weeds. Anybody, anybody ever do any farming? No. Some, thank you. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I, I had to do tobacco as a, as a kid uh, a couple, couple summers. It was not fun. Um, but every good farmer knows that you have to get rid of the weeds, right? Even if, even if you've got a garden at your house with flowers, you know you've got to pull the weeds out of there. Um, and it protects your crop. But in this case, Jesus is saying, premature weeding would destroy too much of the wheat as well. Presumably because... You know, like root systems kind of get worked together, and when you pull one out, you pull the other out. Um, so they will be separated, 
but not yet, Jesus says. And there's an additional little detail here. The Greek word that's used for this, uh, this idea of weeds tells us that this was probably darnel. And darnel is a, a very specific kind of plant that superficially looks like wheat. Superficially looks like wheat, especially early on when you know, the stems and the leaves have sprouted. Spoiler alert, but you can't inspect the fruit yet. Fruit hasn't come out. Um, this is before the fruit could be examined. So, so you know, any, any, Jesus could have used any kind of plant to show that, well, the root systems get intertwined and you shouldn't pull them out. But Jesus chose a specific plant, a plant that looks like the real thing, but isn't the real thing. And I think Jesus chose that on purpose. I think that's, we, we can assume that uh, pretty safely. We'll see later why that is. But notice for now, Jesus says, in essence, let the, the wheat and the darnel uh, grow together, and only at the time of harvest will they be separated. You know, there's an unspoken assumption um, in here by Jesus that the darnel will not choke out the wheat, will it? The wheat will survive. The wheat will still be there. It looks like they might be choked out. The enemy's done a really terrible thing, but here at the time of harvest, the wheat will still be there. Now, a couple of things that I think is interesting, uh, hopefully you'll think they're interesting too, right? Um, but for me, they're interesting. It's interesting to me to think about the ways that, that followers of Jesus and people who are not followers of Jesus can really appear the same. It's like it's tough to tell the difference, right? Um, physically, of course, we look the same. We don't gain or lose the weight we want to gain or lose when Jesus saves us. Right? Our heads don't suddenly become covered in glorious hair, right? It just doesn't happen. Maybe, maybe in the new heaven and new earth, I'll get new hair. Maybe that'll happen. But physically, I'm not bitter, but physically, <laughs> we, we look the same, right? We, we, you can't tell from the outside we look like everybody else. Even, on, even behaviorally, uh, public behavior, intentional uh, uh, caveat there, public behavior, can look the same. You know, we're out at the supermarket or we're walking around downtown or we're at a restaurant or whatever. You cannot look around and say, oh, that, that person knows Jesus. That person knows Jesus. That person is an atheist. That person is a, is a Hindu. Like you just, you don't, you, you can't tell by, by looking around, even by how people act. Um, so not all people who look like followers of Jesus, are followers of Jesus. And we will see later, uh, if we get there as a church, uh, Jesus will say that not even those who claim to be his will be his. Not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's interesting that we can't tell from the outside. It's like wheat and darnell. We can't, we can't, can't quite tell from the outside. It's also interesting to me um, the ways, I'm, this is going to get a little uncomfortable maybe, but, but ways in which Christians want to pull up the weeds. The ways in which we followers of Jesus seem to want the destruction of the people we deem to be evil in, our, in the world around us. Jesus is saying, 
Let the good and evil coexist side by side, the the Christians and the non-Christians in this context, he's saying, the followers of Jesus and the not followers of Jesus exist side by side, even sometimes intertwined until his final judgment. Now, does that sit well with you? It may not. It doesn't always sit well with me. With me, um, we, we might have an unspoken desire to take God's justice and God's uh, weeding into our own hands. Um, and maybe sometimes we see ourselves as, as God's instruments of justice. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't argue against false and destructive ideologies. We should, because those things offend God and they hurt people. So we really should argue against false ideas. But I'm saying that we shouldn't see the people who have been deceived or taken captive by false ideas as our enemies. They've been deceived by the enemy who's out planting in God's garden, but they are not the enemy. Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? So I just, I just want to point that out, that I think Jesus put that in here on purpose. You know, the people say, okay, they're weeds. Didn't you plant a good garden? Yes, yes, I did. How did these weeds get here? An enemy did that. Should we pull them out? No. That's shocking to the people at Jesus' time. Maybe it's shocking to you. It's shocking to me. Um, see, I, when, when we... When we see people as our enemy in this sense, we kind of we uh, go against Jesus' way of doing things, right? We, we, we can have Jesus' way in, our, in here. We can have Jesus' way come out of our mouths. But then when we live, it looks very different than how Jesus lived or how here he's prescribing to do things. We may say we, we're praying for our, our culture. We're praying for these people who are deceived. But... Um, the way we act can seem like we think vengeance is ours and not the Lord's, right? (laughs) You know, we love you, um, but we will do that as you're getting out of our lives. Uh, You know, here in Asheville, we want to drive all the keep Asheville weird people out, (laughs) right? Uh, I'm an Asheville native, and so I I sympathize. I know how how that can kind of can kind of rise up, you know, again, as a Nashville native, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, man, this used to be the Bible Belt, and I wish all the people that don't think like us would just move back to New York or California or wherever they're from, right? So we want to take matters into our own hands now, and prior to the time of harvest, when the Lord has promised that he, listen, he's, he's, he's more just than I am. He's also more merciful than I am. And at the time of harvest, he will sort out the real wheat from the fake darnel, right? That's what the Lord is saying. Um, but, but even more dangerous uh, for Christians today than the premature removal of, of the weeds, in my opinion, is the premature removal of the wheat. Now, uh, what I'm going to talk about here isn't explicit in the text, but I think it applies here. Um, when our disposition toward those with whom we disagree becomes toxic, then, e- then even other Christians want to check out of the conversation. Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed this? Conversation, 
you're on Facebook. Listen, and if you're on my Facebook page, you can see me get toxic sometimes, okay? And I, I, I'm a work in progress, so I'm preaching to me also, okay? Um, but you may have noticed if there's a conversation with a, a follower of Jesus and a non-follower of Jesus, and they're disagreeing on something, and the Christian starts to get toxic, any other Christians are like, they're, I'm out. And I don't blame them. Even on my own page, I don't, I don't blame them. I don't blame them for not wanting to be associated with my toxicity, okay? Um, this, this is an important thing. They don't want to be associated with it, and so they just withdraw. Well, when Christians withdraw from the cultural conversation, then the salt and light is withdrawn because Jesus says we are salt and light. We're preservatives. We bring truth, light to the situation. Um, and so is it any wonder then, check this out, follow my math, that the cultural conversation about things that really matter ends up being one that squelches truth instead of promotes it or brings division or calls good evil and evil good. We bear some of the blame because when we become toxic, other Christians don't want to participate and then salt and light is removed and then good is called evil and evil is called good. You follow me? We, we bear, I bear some blame for that. Um, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't promote truth. I'm just talking about not having our attitudes about the truth cut off our nose to spite our face, right? I, I'm just, I'm on it. And again, I, I'm, I'm speaking to me as well. So partly because of our, our toxic interactions, maybe, and, a part, and partly because some people are intimidated to, to be part of the gospel conversation. Maybe the, there's a fearfulness there. Maybe they're apathetic. They just don't care. Um, but for whatever reason, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we can err on the side of not being toxic and jumping in, you know, both feet in, in a bad way, but we can err on the side of retreating in the arena of ideas and the cultural dialogue and our interactions with others. We can, we can kind of retreat and just huddle up in our, like, Christian bubble, right? We get in this bubble, and then and when we're in a bubble, we have no impact in the garden that God is planting, right? So we've kind of removed ourselves, the wheat, from the garden. Uh, we sort of self-quarantined our influence from the workplace or popular culture. Uh, maybe you've noticed something that, I ha- that I've noticed as well. Um, when I have conversations with people who are not followers of Jesus, I am often shocked at how little they actually know about Jesus or what he taught, or what like biblically rooted Christians actually believe. Has anybody else noticed that? It's like, yeah, it's like, no, that's not what we think at all. <laughs> like, where did you, where did you get that idea? Um, they don't, they don't have an accurate picture of those things. So it's, it's not always because they're hostile to the truth. Sometimes they don't, they don't know what the truth is, right? They, they don't. They learn about Christianity, Christianity, from people who are not really followers of Jesus, or sometimes even from people who are hostile to Jesus. That's, that's where they learn about Christianity. Charlie and I were talking about that this morning, but in some sense before the service. So why, uh, you know, as you look around as uh, if you're a disciple of Jesus, why is our society crumbling? 
morality around us seems to be kind of vanishing or morphing into something unrecognizable uh, by the Bible? Why is it becoming more hostile to biblical historical Christianity, maybe even hostile to Jesus himself? Well, I would suggest it's in large part due to the fact that we have ceased being salt and light that Jesus has told us to be. We, we believe somehow the salt is meant to remain in the salt shaker, right? The light was meant to be hidden or we're too busy kind of preemptively pulling the weeds out of the garden um, that we're, or we're, we're self-quarantining in the field. We're having no influence. Um, so as a result, we may feel like the disciples of Jesus may have felt in Matthew chapter 13. We're, we're increasingly being pushed to the margins. We're being strangled out uh, as followers of Jesus. You know, when we're part of a kind of a, a marginalized, increasingly marginalized, small minority, maybe um, mislabeled uh, people, maybe misunderstood, it's easy to assume that we can't have an impact on the, the, the broader majority or even the, our, the person that works next to us, right? And, and maybe for that very reason, Jesus goes on to tell the next two parables that kind of uh, form a unit in Matthew chapter 13. Let's pick up in verse 31. He's speaking to his disciples then. I think it applies to his disciples now too. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden from the foundation of the world. So we see this is the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven and kind of their aftermath, right, there in, in that section. The mustard seed and the yeast or leaven together illustrate a point about potential, like, awesome, healthy growth resulting from a tiny, seemingly insignificant beginning, right? So in the context of, of wheat and weeds and influence, Jesus then says, well, consider the yeast. Consider the mustard seed, um, now, I just want to point out, uh, sometimes people say, well, this is a false thing. Mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds. The Bible's false. Well, <laughs> we know that the mustard seed isn't the smallest of all seeds, but it was the smallest uh, likely to the folks who were listening to Jesus at the time and in their area. So Jesus is, is saying this in the context of what they know, right? Um, he's giving this parable in their context, but we can learn from it. Um, now, rarely does a mustard seed grow to the height of a tree? That doesn't usually happen. Like four or five, um, it, it stops at like four or five feet. But occasionally, it gets huge. Like some, Kelly and I have these elephant ear plants in the back of our, in our backyard. And it's like, we live in the mountains of West North Carolina, but they think they live in a Costa Rican rainforest. It's unbelievable. Sometimes things get really big, even when it's not anticipated. Um, and apparently that's what happens to this mustard seed in Jesus's parable. The plant becomes a small tree so big, he says, that birds come and make nests in its branches. 
So this parable then moves from kind of the motif of gardening into cooking or baking, where a small amount of leaven, yeast, is mixed into a large batch of flour. That's how you, you make bread from scratch. Um, and even though the baker begins with a small amount of dough, as the yeast fills it out, you get a lot more bread at the end of the thing because it rises. Um, the Apostle Paul would later use this imagery of yeast in a negative context. He would say this is how like sin spreads in our, in our lives and, and in the world. And there are commentators who try to give that negative meaning here to Jesus' words in Matthew 13, but that's not what Jesus is using yeast, but he's using it in a, in a positive way. Uh, the parable of the mustard seed refers to the growth of the kingdom and the parable of yeast um, in, in, the, in the wrong interpretation would say, well, that's like the opposition to the kingdom. And that, that's not the case. And I want to show you why. It's valuable that we've learned about interpreting Jesus' parables. When Jesus um, in the New Testament gives a parable and it's, it's linked to another one and they have parallel themes, he's making a single point, not opposite points. Right? Without exception, you can go check it out, do your homework on that. But so it allows us to see that the mustard seed should help our interpretation of the yeast or the leaven here as well. Both of them depict the growth of the kingdom of God, which is way outside of proportion to its beginnings. Um, the growth here uh, of the kingdom of God is being depicted by Jesus, the king, the king of the kingdom, as the one that grows from a tiny kind of precarious beginning into something that's strong, substantial, and enduring. Um, you know, we don't even have to look far um, to see something like this in our lifetime. Think about, uh, you guys know a guy named Bill Gates. Well, back um, in the 1970s in his garage, he was making a thing called a personal computer. That's what he called it. Uh, and detractors at the time said that computers were a passing fad and they'd never catch on. Well, today computers are everywhere we look. You, you've got a computer either in your pocket or in your hand in your bag somewhere, known as your cell phone, that back then would have been considered a space-age supercomputer made by aliens, right? Like, right? It's everywhere, and it's healthy, and it's huge. The great civil rights movement of the 1950s was begun by one woman who refused to give up her seat on a bus. Right, very small beginnings, huge impact. But within the kingdom of God, this principle of great things from tiny beginnings is all the more true. Think about, even in our time, the hostility against the teachings of Jesus and Jesus himself in places like communist China, right? where you would think it's going to be snuffed out. Christianity cannot survive. They're one of the fastest growing churches in all the world. Right? In Africa, despite famines, tribal warfare, corrupt governments, the ongoing rapid growth of the church is amazing. In Latin America, despite the persecution from really traditional, oppressive Catholic authorities in many of those countries, the church, the Bible-believing church, is seeing exponential growth in Latin America. Uh, it's, um, in fact, I think it's the case that um, if you look out throughout history, it's when the church is most persecuted that it grows the most. It's when it's the healthiest, when we're under the most pressure. Um, whereas if you look at us in the United States, we've got, man, we've got great numbers, we've got great money, we've got great resources, 
But as you talk to American Christians, sometimes we are spiritually the flabbiest Christians, most out of shape spiritually Christians that you'll run into. You go to other Christians in, in other parts of the world where they're persecuted, they're dead serious about their faith. They have to be, right? It truly, this, it, it, it weeds out the, the, the Darnell. The persecution uh, will, will do that sort of thing. Um, uh, so sadly, this, this type of mustard seed growth uh, is not normally the results we see in the church. So let me ask, let's pause and ask a question. Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. The kingdom of God looks like something really, really small that starts out, you know, just tiny, flourishes and grows, and birds can put their, their, their nests in the tree. But why don't we see that then? If Jesus says this is what it's supposed to look like, why doesn't it look like that? Why is that not the norm of what, of what we see? Why would the kingdom of God look different than what Jesus says the kingdom of God would look like? Anybody? Well, uh, I think it's related to a faulty interpretation of these first two passages. So let's look at the explanation. Let's pick up in Matthew chapter 36. I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 36. Jesus is going to explain things for us now. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of uh, of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. This is Jesus referring to himself. The field is what? Let me hear you say it. The world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So this is the explanation of the parable, or or what I like to call, okay, so what does that mean? Right? Um, now, you may have noticed, again, that Jesus makes a correlation here that, that maybe we didn't see coming. Jesus equates the world with the field. We got that, right? But then he says both of um, the world and the, the wheat are his kingdom. Check it out. Verse 38, he says, The field is the world, right? I had you repeat that. And then look at verse 41. He says, The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom. Where's His kingdom? The world is His kingdom. The entire world is... He will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Jesus equates His kingdom with the world itself. We need to stop and think about that. That's an important thing. Uh, Blomberg, my guy, suggests that a, there's a popular misinterpretation in church history. It goes as far back as Augustine uh, in the early 5th century. He understood Jesus to be talking about, you know, there's, there's a mix in the church of believers and unbelievers, and we should let them grow up together within the professing community of Jesus' followers, as if Jesus had equaled the, uh, the field with his church. That's not the case. You know, it's not the case that people weren't supposed to pull weeds out of the church. But this verse is talking about all of creation, 
the world is the kingdom of God. Um, remember, as a church, we've learned that the kingdom of God is where God's authority and love reign. Well, this says that God is going to set all of creation right. Christians, you want a righteous culture? Do you want justice to be done? Do you want vengeance to be done? Jesus has got that. All things will be made right. He will remove out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Right? So we can count on God's vision of building his church is always part of something larger, something more cosmic, a task of advancing his kingdom, his righteous reign in the entire universe. And check this out. He wants to let us be involved. You may want to take a picture of that. He wants to let us be involved. God's going to bring all things to, to culmination, and we get to participate. I hope that doesn't pass over your head as not a big thing. Look at, take a second and look around in this place this morning. We're a small church, are we not? We're a relatively new church, are we not? You may think, man, this is a tiny, piddly little thing that we're doing here. It's not, I mean, I, I come on Sunday mornings. It's not that big of a deal. Sometimes, sometimes I come on Sunday mornings. I might pop into MC or whatever. It's not that big of a deal. Let me tell you something. You're missing it. What does this say? Jesus says, all of the world is his kingdom. He says, you are wheat. He is the planter. The gospel is the good news. He will make all things right, and you get to participate. Reach Life Church you get to participate in the plan of God of making all things new. You get to participate in the plan of God of being like yeast filling all the, all the dough. God's plan involves you. Do you realize that God doesn't have a plan B? He doesn't need one. The church doesn't lose because it belongs to Jesus. We get to be planted by God. We get to be grown by God. We get to be sent out, unleashed in the vernacular of Reach Life Church, unleashed as yeast to fill all God's kingdom with all God's goodness. And you know how we do that? We go into all God's kingdom and we take him with us. Jesus says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Go you therefore, right? Go you therefore. We get to participate. I, maybe I'm the only one that thinks this is awesome. We get to participate. You realize that God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. It's our privilege and our joy to participate in what he's doing. It's amazing. So uh, we get to take part in what God's doing. Let me give you just a brief challenge as I close here. When you go to work tomorrow, you do your paperwork or you work with your hands or when you run errands and go to the grocery store, when you go to school, when you go to the gym, when you go to visit friends or family, do you realize that all of that is kingdom stuff? Do you realize that when you go out, you are in the garden of God? Do you realize that when you go out, Jesus would have you be yeast filling, that it's all kingdom stuff. We get to participate with the gardener in his garden. Here's an amazing thing. Now, he's the gardener. He plants the seeds. But do you realize that he does that most often through us? 
We get to be gardeners in the garden of God, not to pull out the weeds. That's up to him. We plant the seed. We plant the gospel. He gives the increase. He's the gardener. We get to work in the, in the field. Not to bring death, not to pull weeds again, but to spread and cultivate the good news. So I just I want to urge you, man, just, just pray. We are part of a massive, mighty, ever advancing, ultimately victorious kingdom of God. And so what I want us to pray about individually and as a church, and not just pray about, but let's talk about it when the service is over. Many come talk with me or Pastor James or somebody that you trust in here and say, you know what, let's conspire together. How can we advance the good news about Jesus all around it. Now, I'm not, I know we talk about that all the time here, but I don't think we get it. I don't think we get the privilege, man, that we're missing out on uh, to participate with God. So um, I want you to think about that. I want you to pray. I, I believe that if we pray, God, how can every area of my life, while I'm here, you realize we're here for a whisper, right? How can, how can I work in the garden of God, by the power of God, to help people know God while I'm here. And when the harvest comes, he will say, well done, worker in the field, right? I, that's what I want us to pray about. And so we're going we're gonna to spend some time in prayer uh, before we go to the Lord's Supper. But man, let's, let's talk about that together. Let's game plan together. Put practical feet on how can we empower and unleash you individually in your context as you go to work in the garden of God? Um, those of you who are not followers of Jesus, let me, let me talk, talk to you for just a second. Or maybe, bold statement, um, maybe you've kind of thought, I am a, I am a follower of Jesus, but you know, if, if I, look at, if I look at my fruit, I might be wheat and not weed. I mean, or weed and not wheat. I might, I might, on the outside to some people, maybe to myself, I fooled myself to think I'm a disciple of Jesus, but my fruit doesn't. If I'm honest, the fruit of my life, how, the choices I make, how I live my life, my, my motives, I'm not so sure if if I'm the, the, the real thing. Um, let me give you some amazing news. God turns weeds into wheat. Do you understand that? God makes spiritual counterfeits into the real thing. God makes those who are spiritually dead Alive through Jesus. God makes his enemies his friends. You don't have to be an enemy of God. You don't have to be a counterfeit. God can make you new. He invites you into his kingdom today. And let's talk about that after we dismiss as well. Come talk to somebody, man. Um, the Lord wants you to know him and live life as it's really meant to live.